When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Daniel Howitt's interview with the director and writer for Shada, Nora Niasari. Laura, this is uh, Shada. She's uh, here with her daughter, Mona. The judges issued Hossein temporary access. Uh, I, I don't. It understand. means Hossein can see Mona alone, unsupervised. Salam. Salam. Well, first of all, Nora, thank you so much for your film. Such a beautiful movie. Uh, I got to see it in Toronto and I was just oh, floored. Uh, so thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm so glad that you saw it on the big screen. <laughs> yes, yes. I was going to ask you about that. You know, this is your first feature uh, playing at every film festival, pretty much <laughs> winning winning Sundance. Uh, what's it been like to watch your film with an audience? Oh, it's It's been the most rewarding part of the journey. Um, you know, I never imagined the film resonating this much, especially in different parts of the world and different cultures. Uh, it's been really rewarding and very cathartic as well. Well, obviously, uh, the film is very much inspired by your childhood with your mother. When did you decide to turn your story into a film? It was around six years ago that I that I made that decision and uh, but it wasn't without consultation with my mother like she had to agree to it and also be an active participant during the development um, because I had such fractured memories as a child in that situation I needed her to fill in those gaps so um, she I asked her to write a memoir and you know that really helped uh, find a foundation uh, for the screenplay, uh, but but the screenplay really kind of grew from there in terms of finding the cinematic potential beyond our experience. You know, I wanted to tell a universal, you know, a timeless story. Um, so it's it's very much a emotionally autobiographical. The film. Well, yeah, I was going to ask. You know, in writing the story, you you talked about finding the cinematic potential. Did mm-hmm. you did you give yourself permission to? to fictionalize at all or did you feel like you oh, needed yeah. to remain true to every detail no absolutely not I was that was my um you know it, it, it's a it's a balancing act because uh but for me the most important thing was was the film and um creating the best film possible and that's only possible when you as a writer when you free yourself and um allow allow your imagination to go down those paths that may not have happened in reality um but serve the characters in their journey so i i very much kind of stepped into the the filmmaker shoes and uh it was harder for my mother to to um 
you know, let go of what really happened. But, you know, that's that's why I, it was my job to do that. And, uh, you know, she was she she would give notes on the screenplay. Sometimes I wouldn't take them on board. Sometimes I would. Uh, I, I only let her on set once. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 I wanted to be true to the film and what was best for the film. Well, why only let her on set once? Was it, was it difficult for her? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's like, you know, I wanted to create that separation between fiction and reality and having her on set, you know, I, I had her on set once or twice. Once she has a dancing cameo, which, which was really special because it's like, the Mona characters looking up at her dancing at a fire festival. It was kind of meta. Uh, but then she was on set one other time as an extra. And I remember one of the actors uh, had a line of dialogue and she came up to me and she's like, that's not how he would have said it. Or that's not exactly what he said. And I was like, okay, this isn't, this isn't productive or helpful for the film. But I mean, it was something that we agreed to anyway, from the beginning, from the outset was that, you know, she trusted me to tell this story and she was very involved behind the scenes. You know, she would advise um, on the art department, on wardrobe. She made all of the food that you see on screen, all of the Persian food, I mean. And uh, so, you know, I think we struck a really good balance and she's really she's really proud of the film. Amazing. Mm. What uh, what about your mom were you looking for when you were casting uh, the role of Shada? You know, for me, it was about finding someone who had a, a, a really deep resilience and, uh, but at the same time, a vulnerability and openness to the world. Uh, someone who, you know, embodies light and is able to, um, you know, transcend the situation. I mean, she's been an inspiration for me, you know, ever since I can remember because of the way she's been able to rise above her circumstances. Um, and Zara Amir Ebrahimi, who plays Shada, she's a perfect example of that, both in her life, but also in her work, you know, the roles she chooses, the way she uh, presents herself, um, you know, everything about Zara spoke to me uh, and spoke to Shada. So I was, I'm so grateful that she took on this role and she brought so many layers to it, you know, beyond my mother and I's dreams. She is incredible in the film and in the <laughs> yeah. performance. And there are some pretty traumatic moments that are depicted in the movie. Um, I'd love to hear more about how you directed the actors, specifically Zara and Selena, uh, to, to get, get them to those really emotional moments. I mean, for me, it was fundamental to protect Selena from the traumatic themes of the film. Uh, so a lot of the time it was about creating a framework and a, a safe space for Selena to uh, depict the emotions but not actually know what's really going on. So that was kind of the number one priority. And then number two was, you know, their bond. And that bond was really formed during rehearsals you know, even before they met in person, I had them sending video messages and, um, you know, photos and starting a, a line of communication. Uh, so by the time they met, 
in Melbourne, um, it was like love at first sight. You know, they were playing together, they were painting each other's nails, and and so rehearsal was really very much about them bonding as 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 mother and daughter. Um, and you know, because they 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 genuinely loved each other and they still talk. Uh, I think that that bond comes across on screen. So for me, it was really you know, because the casting is the number one thing. Um, so in terms of directing those traumatic, dramatic moments, um, a lot of the time it was about giving them a framework framework, and letting things play out. You know, I didn't, I, I was mindful that I'm working with a six-year-old child. And so, you know, it's it's like you have to be in control of the situation, but not controlling the situation, if that makes sense. It's like, you got to give enough freedom to allow a child to feel like they can express themselves. Um, and, you know, there were times on set where it didn't, it didn't go the way that I had imagined, but it, but it was even better because I was able to embrace feedback from Zar um, and whatever Selena was responding to at the, at the, at that moment. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a very organic and uh, beautiful process. Selena gives one of the greatest performances I've, <laughs> I've ever seen from a child. I, I really, she does feel it's amazing that you say that you gave her that space because it does feel like she's just kind of open to the emotions. Mm-hmm. So uh, that worked spectacularly. I'm so glad. Thank you. No, Absolutely. she's she's incredible. She's a star. Uh, was was the Lion King a specific memory for you? There's there's a number of references to you know <laughs> wanting to see the Lion King playing with Nala toys. Tell me about the Lion King. Absolutely. Lion King is one of my favorite movies still. And uh, it, it was a real touch touchstone for me. Um, and I'm really glad that we had the permission to actually use it in the film. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a touchstone for, for you know, many people. Um, but it's, it, yeah, it's, it was a childhood fascination, but I think it's also... Um, you know, a child's desire to just have a normal life, like go to the cinema, watch a movie, play with her toys, you know, but but because of the situation, it's not so easy to achieve. You know, it's like even the simplest of dreams gets, gets muddied, you know, when children are caught in the, in the crossfire of these conflicts. Um, So I, I, I thought it was a really good way to ground, ground her her hopes and aspirations definitely a touchstone <laughs> movie for me as well um, <laughs> everybody, everybody. Who, doesn't love, who doesn't love simba like <laughs> <laughs> so good yeah. uh, well, I'd, I'd love to hear more about uh the visual style of the film mm-hmm. well first of all the the aspect ratio i'm not sure what the exact ratio was but I, I, maybe no. is it 1.33 i'm not sure yeah yeah it's academy ratio four by three one three three one so why mm-hmm. why that ratio well it was a couple of things um Obviously, it's set in the 90s, so I wanted to kind of uh, ground it in that time. But also the most important thing was, uh, you know, allow the the audience into shade of the state of mind, um, the claustrophobic nature of her experience and kind of the radical subjectivity of the of the point of view. Um, it's it's just much more immersive in that aspect ratio. If it was a wider screen, I don't think the audience would feel as immersed into her emotional state. Uh, so those were the those were the reasons. And 
you know, thankfully everybody agreed. Yeah. Because <laughs> so, it's not an easy thing to get across the line. How how um, else did you embody that claustrophobia using the visual language of the movie? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my cinematographer and I, we'd worked on three short films um, leading up to Shader. So we really had a shorthand. And, and, the, and, the, and the last short film that I made before Shader was called Tam. And it was very much um, from a woman's point of view of a situation. And we're always experience, ex- experiencing the world with, either with her or through her eyes. And that was kind of the, the intention for Shader as well, approaching it in that very intimate way. Um, we're either with Shader or Mona experiencing the work. We never, we're never like waiting in a room for them to enter. We're entering the room with them so that the audience always feels like they're right there, you know? And that was so fundamental to the emotional journey um, and rhythm of the film. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, Andrea Arnold was a really uh, important touchstone, Robbie Ryan's cinematography. Uh, but we also, you know, because it, it it was really, it had uh, thriller elements. So we had to create that suspense as well. Uh, so there was also a lot of long lens shots of, of, of seeing Shader through a crowd or through reflections, um, this, this menacing feeling that she's being watched. Uh, so, you know, there was, there was a kind of marrying of those two um those two elements to to give to round out the emotional landscape of the film yeah i was going yeah. to ask you if there were other films or anything that inspired the film either visually or or structurally or anything like that uh, so andrea arnold was a was a big one yeah andrea and arnold i mean during the screenwriting i was watching a lot of hitchcock mm. a lot of chabrol you know um i really wanted to um get across that those thriller elements, but but from a really kind of inside psychological perspective of what it feels like to be a woman in that situation, escaping domestic violence, but the violence still following you, the fear still following you. Um, for the first half an hour of the film, we don't actually see the husband, but he's talked about a lot. Uh, there's a lot of references to him. And, you know, that's a very Hitchcock move to like, hold withhold um so those were some of the references in the writing process uh as well as like Asghar Farhadi I think the way that he um the the moral ambiguity in his characters and situations were really pertinent to me because I didn't want to make something um black and white you know I wanted all of the characters even the father character to have um great dimension and nuance so yeah, those were the main kind of inspirations. Uh, well, this being your first narrative feature, what's something that you learned in this process that you're going to take into future projects? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I would say there's a couple of things. One is being more mindful of uh, self-care. <laughs> it's definitely the kind of film that took a lot emotionally, psychologically, and I I developed a lot of good self-care strategies and continue to do that. And I and I know that, you know, I'll be stronger for it for my next film. And then, you know, possibly 
you know, I'm I, for my next film, I'm I'm taking a step away from the personal material. It's an my next film is an adaptation of an Iranian American lo- not novel. Uh, and the screenplay it has a lot of it has a lot of me in it, but it's not about me, and that's liberating. You know, I I I sort of, you know, I, I want to explore that side of my creativity as well. What's the name of the novel? If you don't, if you're ready to it's, share, um, it's called Raya R A Y A, and it's the second in my trilogy about Iranian women. Amazing! I can't wait for <laughs> yeah. all three. Me uh, too. <laughs> Nora, thank you so much. That's just about my time. Before I let you go, uh, what does your mom think of the final product? She's so proud. She's so proud. I, she's been on tour with me uh, in Australia for the theatrical release. She's she's been doing Q and As. She's adorable. She's she's loving it. She got recognized uh, in a nail salon the other day. Uh, she's like, someone came up to her and they're like, are you the real life shader? And she's like, yes. And she was so excited. She said she felt like a celebrity. Um, <laughs> so I think she feels really seen. And there's a there's a lightness to her step these days. So I'm, yeah, I'm really happy that everything's worked out. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for the film. Uh, I can't wait for more people to discover it. And thank you for your time. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Daniel Howitt's interview with the director and writer for Shada, Nora Niasari, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Shada is now in its qualifying run for this year's Academy Awards, playing in limited theatrical release, and is up for your consideration for Best International Feature Film and Best Actress for Zahar Amir Ibrahimi at the 96th Annual Academy Awards. It is the Australian official selection for Best International Feature Film. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture Podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate feedback and your support which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you all so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.